All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4. We are going to talk this morning about the new year. More specifically, we're going to talk about each of your future. Now, everybody's interested in the future. We want to know what the new year is going to bring us at work, maybe in relationships, in re- our investments. What's going to happen in this new year? For those of us in the Lord's work, we want to know what's going to happen in the ministry in this coming year. Now, the average person has different ways of forecasting the future. Surprisingly, very popular is palm reading. Just about everybody knows their astrological sign, and many people actually check the papers or internet to find out things about their sign. Others use tarot cards, but uh, everybody is interested in the future. Those that are educated, maybe somewhat more sophisticated, they'll read books or listen to an audio book, uh, books like uh, Micro Trends or Outliers or the uh, best-selling So Yesterday, <laughs> best-selling book. The fact is, everybody is trying to forecast, and it makes a lot of sense for your business. It makes a lot of sense in our life to kind of know what's going to happen. Now, we're going to take a case study. God just brings it to us and says, all right, here's a man, a businessman, who is forecasting. He is making plans for the new year, and, uh, but he makes three major mistakes, and God lays it out for us. Sometimes, uh, you know, the sermons we preach are ones that we lay out someone's success. This one is where we lay out someone's mistakes. And oftentimes, I learn more from my mistakes than from my successes, don't you? And so this morning, we're going to find the three spiritual lessons, life lessons, that God's going to talk to us about putting God in the center of our new year. Well, this is a time for new uh, thoughts and resolutions. Here's a man who talked about calling his mom and dad, wishing them a happy new year. My dad answered, well, dad, what's your new year's resolution? I asked him to make your mother as happy as I can all year long. He answered proudly. Then mom got on, mom, what's your resolution to see that your dad keeps his new year's resolution? Well, I hope your resolution is to make sure that God is in the center of your life. Let's all bow forward to prayer. Father, we come before you. We need you. Oh, God, I pray that you will work salvation in the midst of the earth, Lord. That's been my prayer these last couple of days. Thank you for the promise. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, we're going to go to James chapter 4. We're going to be reading these verses together in just a moment, but let me give you just a quick uptake on it. Now, in many respects, the man that we're going to talk about is a successful man. We're going to go back to the first century. We're going to go back to Israel. But really, uh, this man could be in any century. And uh, we would think, well, he's probably a successful man. But in reality, as we'll find out, he is a failure. Did you know that it is possible to be doing well and still be a failure? It's been said wisely that failure is really just succeeding at the wrong thing. You know, a couch potato is actually a success. (laughs) He's just a success at the wrong thing. He needs to be a success at work instead of being a professional couch potato. 
Now, everybody might be looking at your life and may be saying, boy, that's a successful person. They are well-to-do. They have a, a very successful career. Yet the fact is, honestly, you might be failing. And that's what God's going to point out here. It doesn't mean just because you're doing well financially or just because you're doing well in your job or in your sports or whatever that you're a success. He's going to tell us there is a big issue with that. You must keep God in the center of your life. All right, with that in mind, let's read together and uh, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. If you have an electronic Bible, pull up the King James, or if you want to look at the PowerPoint here, or if you have a regular Bible. By the way, our uh, chief cook and bottle washer is not here today, so if you're looking for your notes online, they're not here today, so you're just going to have to write them or remember them, so sorry about that. All right, let's go to verse 13. Let's read it together. Ready? All right, begin. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. All right, verse 14 together. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. This man made three serious and major mistakes. Oh, you'd say, well, he didn't handle his money well. Actually, he handled his money quite well from an earthly standpoint. Oh, he didn't take care of his uh, thoughts and he didn't, you know, do the best he could with his marketing. No, he was an excellent marketer. He was a success in this world, but he was a failure in his spiritual life. And so God says, I want you to beware of three things. And folks, as I was reading through this and as I was going through this and felt the Holy Spirit's direction, I was reminding myself, Tim, this year, please, in your life and your family and relationships and in the church, make sure that all of these are cared for. Uh, three serious mistakes. First of all, and we're going to give it as a caution, beware of preoccupation or indifference to God's will. Let's go to verse 13. Go to now. <laughs> That's one of those uh, old King James uh, uh, Elizabethan language there, go to now. It just means, get this. It's a very abrupt and very forceful saying. It'd be like saying, listen up here, son. Listen up here, my sweet daughter. Now listen to me. Go to now. Anybody that says today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such a city. We're going to continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Now this man was forward-looking. He was a wise businessman. Notice, first of all, he had a period of time figured out. He got out his calendar, and, or if he would be living today, he'd get out his iCal or perhaps Microsoft Outlook, and he had it all figured out. I mean, I've been amazed at my iCal. It, uh, it, we reserved a, an airline flight, and it showed up on my calendar. And a day before, it reminded me. I thought, man, these things are amazing. I didn't even put it in there. And these phones we have, and these calendars we write on. But the fact is that this, was, this man was doing, he had a period of time. 
Number two, notice they had a place. Verse 13, we will go into such a city. Now, many of the Jews in the ancient world were traders. The agriculture in Israel was not great, although many did it. Uh, grapes and wheat and a few other things, but it's not really a, a great land for producing things. So most of them were traders. They would buy and they would sell, and they would especially think of, uh, in this time, villages were popping up, and sometimes they would go to some outlying little countries there, and they would set up shop. And especially if it was going to be a trade route, they would say, man, that's going to be a perfect trade route, and they'd figure it out. And so they would, uh, they would figure out the place not only did they have a place, but I want you to notice the procedure that they had. They're going to buy and sell. There's an interesting Greek word. It's actually the Greek word emporomai. Emporomai, the first part of that Greek word is the word emporium. And so uh, they had an excellent marketing strategy. I mean, his uh, period of time, the place, the procedure, it was all figured out. Maybe this man had gone to the University of Jerusalem. He was crunching numbers. He was figuring out he could buy something for this amount. He could sell it for this amount. Certainly nothing wrong in doing any of that. He had a place. He had a period. He had the procedure. He already had the profit figured out. I'm giving you a good outline there if you want to preach it sometime. And uh, he had the profit figured out. He had it all figured out. And he knew what he was going to do. Now, so far, so good. The Bible never condemns good business practice. The Bible never condemns good planning. In fact, it encourages it. The Bible never condemns taking a profit. In fact, it supports it. Even Jesus himself said, you should have put your money to the exchanger so that when I come, it's more than when you had at the beginning. You ought to do what you can. And yet notice, this man was preoccupied with the dull and din of life. He was indifferent to spiritual things. Very clearly, he left God altogether out of his plans. Notice what it says here. Ye that say. That is the Greek word lego. Ye that say. What it means is to state something from logic or from reason. This man had spent hours reasoning this thing out. I mean, I can see him now. He had taken a survey trip to the area he was going to. He had done the math. Uh, I was talking with some fellows who worked at Costco the other day, and uh, they were telling me they were just opening a new one in uh, Elk Grove, and the other one said, Elk Grove? Doesn't Elk Grove already have a Costco? And he said, yeah, but this is across town. And they, they said, oh, yeah, they ran the numbers, and so many people come from here. And I mean, they did the numbers. Folks, when they open up a Starbucks or whatever, I'm telling you, there are experts that are crunching how many trips are going by. They've got it all figured out. This man was doing the same thing. He took a survey trip. Boy, I mean, he crunched the numbers. He found a place where he could secure a product at this price, and he had it all figured out. I mean, by the hour. He was sitting at his table. He was interviewing people. He had done his uh, homework. He had spent weeks and days and months figuring out a business plan and never one time prayed and never one time sought God's face and never one time did he open up his Bible and say, God, is this 
what you want me to do? I mean, he was brilliant. He was a great businessman. He had it all figured out. But not one time did he ever bow his knee and say, God, this is your business. If you want to prosper it, you can. He, for all intents and purposes, was an atheist. That doesn't mean he didn't believe in God. Doesn't mean that he even wasn't a Christian. But the fact was, he was absolutely indifferent to the things of God. In my mind, I can see him. He's there at his kitchen table, and he's figuring things out. He's writing things out. And God is over there in the corner of that living room. He's sitting on a chair. The God, the most brilliant businessman that had ever lived. We're talking about God who could give him all this. And this man was busy working, and here's this brilliant person, just not, nobody was even taking advantage of him. I remember one time I was with one of my young preacher buddies. We were just in our early 20s, and we were next to the pastor of the world's largest church. We were with the pastor of the world's largest church. He was brilliant, amazing. And my young friend was talking the whole time. I mean, just talking and jabbering. I don't know what happened. I'm like, wait a minute, you need to shut up for a minute. I kept trying to say, you know, doctor, what are you? And I would talk to the pastor and think, man, come on. We're in our 20s. We don't know a thing. We're, just, we're these little tiny people. This guy is an amazing guy. Listen to him. And that's what we're like. We're, we've got the God of the universe, the king of all kings, and he's sitting right there with us, and we don't ever even ask him. He is the greatest businessman. He is so smart. Someone once said, the biggest fool is not the man who says there is no God. The biggest fool is the man who says there is God, but doesn't live like it. Didn't even cross his mind. Look at verse 14. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. For what is your life? Even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away like a puff of smoke. The Greek word there is the word for mist. You know, like a morning mist, we have fog here. <laughs> we used to have a lot more fog than we have now. I don't know where it went, but um, the fog comes in the morning, and then by noon it's gone. You wouldn't even know that it was there. No even trace of the fog. And that's what it's saying here. It says, life is like a vapor. It's like a mist that comes up from the ground, and by noon it's gone. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, this may be the last sermon that you will ever hear. This may be the last sermon that I will ever preach. Many times I pray to the Lord, Lord, help me to preach as though it's the last time I'm ever going to preach your name. Boy, I don't want to go out pussyfooting. I want to go out proclaiming the things of God. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told of a farmer, a businessman, very successful businessman who had absolutely just reaped the benefit of a grape crop. In fact, so much so that he didn't even have enough room to put all of his, uh, all of his success. And he said, what am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I will tear down those old barns and I'll build new barns and I will just stack it away and I will just put it away into these accounts so that I will never have to work again. I was reading the other day in the business page about this new movement called FIRE. Financially independent, retire early. Fire. And there's, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people that are buying into this 
fire. Financial independence, retire early. Hey, I'm not against it, but I will say this, that all of that really seems to sound a whole lot like Luke chapter 12. The rich man who just socked it away and said, we don't ever have to work again. Folks, is that what God's will is? Is that what God is saying? Jesus said, you fool. To this night, your soul shall be required of thee. You've done all this work, and you didn't even know. You set your clock wrong. You set your clock for 10 years, or 20 years, or 40 years, when you should have been setting your clock for today. Because today, your soul shall be required of you. God never condemns us for having a good plan. God's not against us, you know, having these financial plans. But the best plan is the O-B-E-Y plan. That's a four-step plan. It's called obey. Just obey what Scripture says. People say, oh, I should do this. I should get an advisor. Okay, I'm good with that. There's some wisdom in all of that. But the fact is, obedience is still the best plan. Folks, you can't rob God and think you're going to turn out all right. That's disobedience. I don't care what your plan is. I don't care who you got. I don't care how much money you have in the bank. If you are not obedient, you are just cutting your legs right off. I mean, if you are stealing the tithe, if you're not giving to God's kingdom, if you're not living for God, it's not just about this or that, folks. We need to make sure that we realize, like Jesus said, thou fool, this night your soul shall be required of thee. For many, God is not on their radar. And they're so close to disaster, they have no idea how close they are. I was reading about, in 2018, had two major naval accidents over in uh, South China Sea. Two different ships crashed. <laughs> We're talking Navy, U.S. Navy ships. We're not talking about some offbeat nation. We're talking about nation, uh, a nation with the greatest Navy in the history of the world the most technological advanced uh, Navy ships, and they run in to a tanker or they run into some fishing vessel. How in the world? Well, they found out what it was. Indifference. The captain left the bridge. Seamen weren't properly trained. They didn't understand the instruments. They didn't pay attention to the instruments. The instruments were broadcasting loud and clear, and yet everybody was indifferent. And that's what I see in life today. I mean, God is broadcasting. What are you doing? Life is on a, it's like a vapor. What are you doing spending all your life with all your plans? Don't you realize that tonight you might meet God? Today you're going to meet God. Are you ready today? That's what God is saying. Preoccupation with our own things. It's an indifference to God's will. But there's a second caution here, a second thing we're to be aware of, and that is beware of presumption, arrogance to God's will. Verse 15 and 16, for that ye ought to say, <laughs> I know some Christians don't like that. They say, feel like that's a burden, you know, when you say you ought to do this, but that's what the Bible says. I'm sorry. That's what you, this is what you ought to do. If the Lord will, we shall live or do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Now here's a person who does acknowledge God. Here is a person who does think about God. They get the sense that there is a God. They know there's a God. 
but in practice, they just say, my way is better. They never say, God, show me your will. We ought to say, Lord, if the Lord wills. The Apostle Paul practiced this so often. In Acts chapter 18, verse 21, he said, but I will return unto you if God will. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19, he said, I will come to you shortly if the Lord will. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7, I trust to tarry a while with you if the Lord permit. Here we find the Apostle Paul giving us an example of the very thing that God is telling us here. We should say, if the Lord wills. Now, that doesn't mean we have to end every sentence that we talk about, if the Lord wills. That doesn't mean that every time we make a plan, we have to say out loud, if the Lord wills. It does mean that we should always have the awareness that there is nothing I can do for my success that is greater than the favor of God. I will seek the favor and the will of God. It's been said that man proposes, but God disposes. It should say, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this with God. In all of our doing, where's God? Years ago, there was a, there was a game, I think it's a video game, Where's Waldo? Anybody remember Where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? I want to say, Where's God? In all of our planning, and that's where we ought to say, Where is God? I've watched people say, I prayed about it. I prayed about it. And then watch them go out and violate Scripture. And I'm thinking to myself, How did they pray? What do you mean you prayed about it? How did you pray? Because most people pray like this, Lord, bless what I'm doing. Bless what I'm doing. When we ought to pray, Lord, help me to do what you're blessing. Help me to do what you are blessing. If this is what you're blessing, then that's what I'm going to do. If that's what you want, then that's where I'm going to be. Rather than just make a plan and then say, Lord, bless it, we ought to put God in on this thing the whole time. And God loves to show you his will. I love that scripture in Psalm 32 and verse 8. A wonderful promise. I will instruct thee and I will teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I'll teach you. I'll instruct you. The way that God does it, of course, is with his word primarily. When we read the word, when we meditate on the word, when we listen to the word like this, and I commend you for being here week after week, and many people even come Sunday nights. God bless you. I commend you for that. Because all of us, no matter how old we are or young we are, we all need instruction, it says. And if you don't like instruction, the Bible says you're like a donkey, you're like a, a person that uh, won't let a, a bridle in your mouth. And there are some people, boy, they're okay as long as they're running free, but boy, you put a bridle on them, they don't like it. But God says, I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. And I love that last part, I will guide thee with mine eye. When you're close to the Lord, all it takes is a wink or just an eye movement, and you know what God wants. Some folks, I mean, they're always talking about the will of God like it's the hardest thing in the world to find. Other people seem to know His will just almost instantly. Because when you're close to the Lord, you can just look at His eyes, and you know. You'd say, well, 
Uh, how does that work? Well, you've been guided by somebody's eyes, haven't you? You remember your parents looking at you with their eyes saying, you know, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> I was uh, watching the little routine that the Gaither, uh, Mark, uh, Mark Lowry does, you know, where he tells the story of his mom playing the piano on the, on the platform, you know, looking out there at him and cutting up in the balcony saying, I'm going to kill you when I get home, you know. A victory in Jesus, I'm going to kill you. And uh, we've all had the, the eyeball. Maybe you've been to a restaurant with your wife. You're talking about some things. And you start going down a certain line. line all of a sudden, you've, you look over and your, eye, your wife's giving you the side eye. She looks so you say another word about that, I'm going to bonk you on the head. And, uh, but you know what uh, the fact is? When we're close to the Lord, He leads us with His eyes. We're so close to Him, we get a sense of what He wants. God's willing to lead us. Now look at verse 16. It says, don't boast as though you're going to do this. Don't boast. You know, that word boast there is an interesting word. It means to speak loudly in a public place. Don't boast. It's actually the actual, it was actually a, a Greek phrase from people in Greece who would stand on a rock or they would stand on a little platform and basically uh, they were selling phony goods. Step right up, folks. This will cure what ails you and if nothing ails you, it soon will. And uh, they just stand there and they're hawking some medicine that doesn't work and that's the word there. All of you that are boasting about, the, about what you're going to do, you're like, a, you're like a snake oil salesman that's standing on a rock proclaiming and boasting. That's what Solomon said in Proverbs 27 verse 1, boast not thyself of tomorrow. You don't know what a day may bring forth. You don't know nothing. You don't know diddly about tomorrow. Don't act like you know what's going to happen. God can change your life in a second. I mean, folks, 24 hours can absolutely change our life. I mentioned a few moments ago, made fun of my bonked head, but the truth is I thank the Lord because uh, Sunday, last Sunday afternoon after church, and we'd had a wonderful lunch, and I was walking in my bedroom and had my hands full of stuff, and one of my feet kind of drugged the ground, and I started flying. Since my hands were full, I couldn't brace myself. You know, at that moment, you don't think of dropping stuff. So I went flying for the window, and my head hit the windowsill, just like that. I'm telling you what, folks, a half a more step, my head went right through that window. We'd be having a whole lot different discussion, I'll tell you right now. Thank God it just scalped me. I don't know how much to scout, but it did. It just kind of like that. But thank God our lives can change in a second. I always am amused and frankly irritated when I hear the poem, The Invictus. <clears throat> when is, excuse me, William Ernest Henley, a Victorian uh, poet and playwright, died in 1903 and wrote the very familiar poem. You've heard it. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. 
I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. (laughs) Yeah, right. And by the way, when you read that poem very clearly, he was talking about God. He talked about a straight gate. He talked about the fear of punishment. This proud sucker was there just saying, you know what? I have my, I'm the master of my soul. Really? When you die, you're going to master your soul. You know exactly what's going to happen. Are you so proud to think that you're going to do that? Look what God says in verse 16. He said, all such boasting is evil. You know what that word is? Poneria. Evil. It's the same word that God used for the devil. He said that is satanic talk. Any Christian who says, I'm the master of my faith, and these, these positive thinking books and all that, I'm, there's some good in them, but I will tell you, anybody who stands up and says, you can be rich, you can do this, you can do that. Folks, the Bible says all such talking is evil. It's not just a bad idea. It's evil. A hundred years ago, there were people who said, unsinkable. Even God couldn't sink this ship. It was the largest, fastest, most amazing ship ever built. It launched from England. It was going to go to New York at 25 knots with over a thousand people on board. They said it is absolutely impregnable. They were so bold. They were so arrogant that they knew that there was icebergs and they went full steam ahead. And on that fateful day, the Titanic sank and 1,200 people plus lost their lives all because of their presumption and arrogance that even God, the newspapers said, even God couldn't sink this ship. I'll tell you one thing, the minute they said that, God said, okay, watch. Beware of preoccupation, indifference to God's will. Number two, beware of presumption, arrogance to God's will. But there's a third caution as we look at 2019, and that is this. And perhaps this is the biggest issue of all. Beware of procrastination, complacence to God's will. Verse 17, and let's read this together. (laughs) Just so I can set the conviction a little deeper. If you haven't felt the knife yet, you're going to feel it now. Let's read it out loud, all right? Get your, get your, get your army boots on, because I'm going to be stomping on some toes now. So I hope you have your metal army boots on. Ready? Let's go. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. It is sin. Now, this is a very dangerous sin. Now, we all know there are some vices that God doesn't like. We know that drunkenness, drug addiction, and we know that immorality and all these things, violence and hatred, we know these are bad things. But many of us feel like we're okay as long as we're not doing those things. But God says it's just as great a sin to fail at what you ought to do than to do what you ought not to do. In theology, these are called sins of commission, things that we commit, or sins of omission, things that we omit. Does it sound confusing? Well, it kind of is. 
Someone asked a little Sunday school boy, they said, do you know what sins of omissions are? He said, well, sins of omission, let me see. He said, well, those are sins that you ought to have done and you didn't do. (laughs) No, that's not what the sins of omission are. They're not sins that you were supposed to do. No, they are things that you should have done, but you didn't do. This man doesn't say, I won't do it. This man doesn't arrogantly say, you know, I don't think God's will is right. He's just self-complacent. He's just a procrastinator. Do you know why people, most people die and go to hell? Most people in America, at least, most people die and go to hell because of procrastination. I mean, they've heard the gospel. They get a sense that it's correct and they feel like maybe that'd be a good idea, but they just say, you know what, I'll do that someday. They procrastinate. It's not because they are just such great sinners. It's because they just don't take what God says they're supposed to do. I remember reading a little gospel booklet, a little tract, as we call them, and it said on the front, it said, what must I do to go to hell? What must I do to go to hell? And I thought, man, this is a pretty straightforward track. I wonder what they wrote. I opened it up, and the inside was blank. It was blank. It was a booklet with nothing inside, kind of like the wordless book, only this was truly the wordless book. What must I do to go to hell? Nothing. The fact is, that's what God is saying. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said after John 3.16, as John 3.17 said, we're condemned already. We don't have to do anything. We are already under the condemnation of God because of our sin. Look what this verse says. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. Why do so many homes fail? Because of neglect. Why do so many marriages fail? Because of neglect. They just let something so precious as a marriage just kind of get commonplace. I will tell you, Pauline and I both work at having a good marriage and many times a day I will tell her I love her. We've had a unique relationship in that We've turned a friendship into a marriage, and we've had to each time just tell each other, look each other in the eye and say, I love you. I love you. And pretty soon it was a fact. I loved her as a sister. I loved her as a fellow laborer, but the Lord has given me a, a married love. And that's what the Lord has done. When you, when you purpose to him that knoweth to do good, to him it is sin. Why do we have in our county here? Why do we have in this great region so many half-empty churches? I will tell you why. Procrastination. People just decided they'd just lay out a church. And folks, if you're not careful, we will begin to lay out a church. Now, I'm not talking about when we're sick or when you're you know, out of town or you have some work or something like that, but I'm just talking about just laying out a church. And pretty soon before you know it, I mean, it just gets easier to stay home than it is to go to church. And I will tell you what, it's It's easy to fall into that. But folks, keep up the battle. Keep going. Keep moving ahead. There's a passage in Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23. Interestingly enough, a verse my mother quoted to me often. (laughs) Numbers 32 and verse 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And here's the part that she always would quote to me. Be sure your sin will find you out. Maybe I was a a little uh, stubborn little guy, sinful little guy, I'm not sure. But do you know the context of that verse? It's actually an interesting context because when you see the context, ah, you get it in a whole different light. 
Joshua was talking to two tribes, Reuben and Gad. They, had, they were about ready to go into Canaan land, all 12 tribes, and Reuben and Gad were east of the Jordan River. They, all of them were east of the Jordan River, but Reuben and Gad looked at this and said, this is good enough. We've gone far enough. We have gone far enough in our spiritual life. We have gone far enough serving God. We have done all that we need to do. I'm going to settle. I'm just going to coast for a while. We're tired of fighting fights. We're tired of running around. We're tired of always giving. We're always having to do things. We'll stay over here. And they, of course, sold it on the concept of, you know, we're content. We don't have to have Canaan land. <laughs> That's not contentment. That's just plain old disobedience. And Reuben and Gad, Joshua finally agreed to it. He said, all right. He said, fine. And now they agreed that they would help their brothers. He said, we'll, we'll help you, but we want to stay here. And Joshua finally agreed, okay, you can. But then he said, now, if you don't come and help us, if you don't come and help God's people win the battle, be sure your sin will find you out. It is sin to not do what you know you're supposed to do. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this morning, I'm convinced that there are many churches that are half empty because there are people who are east of the river. They're Gad and Reuben. We're just going to stay over here. You go on. You build the church. I got things I got to do with my time. You give to the kingdom of God. I got things I need to do with my money. You pray for the success of that ministry. You invite people. I'm, I'm, I have to keep my dignity. I can't invite people. I've got a position in the, in the community. I can't do this or that. And folks, there are, there are so many today, and that's exactly why so many churches fail. And I tell you that when we, 20 years ago, when we began to discuss coming up to this property, and, and uh, there was many of us who had healthy cautions, and yet by faith we said, all right, we're going to do this. And we pushed ahead. But unfortunately, there were some a few minority, thank the Lord, but they were just bitter and put up a vocal squawk and carried on a subversive campaign. But here's the thing, strange enough. So here's everybody, they've been giving, they've been working, they built the building. And the, the bitter minority, when we got to the new building, they were the first ones that wanted their children buried in the new building. They wanted all the parties in the new building. I thought, I felt like Chicken Little. You know, who'll, make me, who'll help me make the dinner? Who'll help me make the dinner? Oh, you make the dinner. I, we got things to do. But when it came time to eat the dinner, everybody wanted to eat the dinner. He wasn't much for stirring about. It wasn't his desire. While others worked to build their church, he was sitting by the fire. Same old story, day by day. He never seemed to tire. No matter what others did, he was sitting by the fire. At last he died, as almost due. Some say he went up higher, but if he's doing what he used to do, methinks he's sitting by the fire. The fact is, folks, nobody in this building has a right to be at peace when our brethren are at war. Folks, this is a fight. Last Sunday morning, 
We had a tremendous service. I mean, full crowd, chairs, people got saved, baptisms, great offering. What was going on behind the scenes, though, was earlier that morning and that week, the devil had attacked. He, and I can't give you any details, but he attacked. While we were singing, I was rebuking Satan. I was asking God, oh God, put a hedge of protection about this building. And oh God, I pray for your, your power. And by the time I got up to preach, if you had poked me, I would boom through the ceiling. Because I knew we were at war. And one of the things I told the Lord was, God, help us build this place. Help us to kick the devil and I can talk to the Lord like that, and I can kick the devil, kick him, kick him. I tell you, Lord, help me. Help us as a church because there is nothing more than the devil would want to take a Bible-preaching church, a gospel-proclaiming church, and to just let it go away. Complacency, procrastination, dead, and it'll be just like the other ones that are half full all over this county. To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. One of my Spanish-speaking friends from Latin country, I asked him what the word manana meant. He said, tomorrow. But he said, actually, where we come from, it doesn't really mean tomorrow. <laughs> he says, it doesn't really mean tomorrow. It just means not today. <laughs> when someone asks you if they'll do a project, manana. That just means, it doesn't mean I'm going to do it tomorrow. It just means not today. Manana. Manana. I thought to myself, how many Christians, that's their theme. Manana. 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 I'm going to start tithing manana. I'm going to start witnessing manana. I'm going to start praying for the lost manana. I'm going to start singing enthusiastically in church manana. No. The Spanish word hoy, that means today. Hoy. Come on, hoy! I like that anyway. It's got an H in it. And H, H makes you go how loud. Hoy! Today! Hoy! Today! Not manana. Hoy! Today! Am I saying that right, brother? No, okay. Well, that's I like it. And uh, stay out of my sermon. And uh, you'll agree with me when I ask you. All right. He'd say, well, if I knew the will of God, I just wish I knew the will of God. Really? You're so worried about the will of God? Okay. Oh, I wish I... They will, they will, they just cry. Oh, I just wish I knew the will of God. No, what they mean is I wish I knew who I'm supposed to marry. I wish I know how to make money. I wish I know what job. We can know the will of God. 1 Timothy 2, 4. Who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's his will. If you're here today and you don't, if you're not saved, you're not sure that if you die, you go to heaven, don't worry about anything else. You need to worry about getting saved. First Timothy 2, 4, who will have all men to be saved? You'd say, well, oh, I wish I knew the will of God. Here's the will of God. First Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. The word sanctification means being made like a saint or separate from the world. We're so worried about the will of God when the will of God is just to grow in the Lord, pray, give, just get busy serving God, get, get sanctified, and God will just lead you with his eye. 
You won't even have to worry about it. It'd be so, you'll be so close to Jesus, he'll just kind of wink at you and you go, I got it. I got it. Because that's the will of God for my life. Remember what Jesus said in John 13, 17? If you know these things, happy are you. No, he finishes the verse. If you do them. It's one thing to think about it. It's another to do them. The old divine said it this way. I trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and my future to God's will. That's what Abraham did. He followed God's leading wherever it would go, wherever it would take him. That's what Hannah did. She said, God, you know the perfect timing for my life. That's what Mary did. She didn't need to know all the details. All she knew was that God was going to do a miracle. And that's what Joseph did. He said, I don't understand the circumstances behind all this, but God, I'm going to trust you. You'd say, are we going to be able to get this building done? Yes, by God's grace, we will. How? Um, that's, that I'm not sure of, but I am sure that God's going to do this. What does 2019 hold? I'm not sure. But one thing I do know is that he's going to be in the center of my life, in the center of my marriage, in the center of our ministry. Put him at the center of everything. Do this just in a few moments, we're going to begin to sing. Do this, either in your seat or come here and just say, Lord, I purpose that I will put you at the center of every decision in 2019. Lord, help me not to be guilty of any of these three things. If you're not saved, get saved. If you're saved but not baptized, get baptized. If you're saved and baptized, you're not a member of a local church, sign up for that class and start next Sunday with us. Do this. Commit yourself. That's what God wants us to do. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.